Our Sunday readings are on a, a three-year cycle. And in that three-year cycle, only twice do we get a reading from the book of Job, which is where we get our first reading for today. In my humble opinion, that's far too few. For the book of Job addresses the number one objection to the faith, to Catholicism and Christianity. The number one objection to really organized religion in general. And the number one objection to the existence of God. The book of Job addresses the problem of evil, which simply put is, if God exists, if he's all good, if he's all powerful, if he's all knowing, as he is all of those things, then why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why is there hardship and death in this world? And, you know, it's not just an intellectual objection, the problem of evil. It's a very personal one because we all, to one degree or another, have hardships and sufferings in our life. So very quickly it becomes, why did God let me get cancer? Why did God let my spouse die? Why did this or that trial befall me? So the book of Job begins with a good man, Job, who's also very prosperous. And God permits him, uh, allows him to face severe suffering as a means of, of showing that his righteousness is not just the result of good circumstances, but, but is really, truly his character. And so in the blink of an eye, Job loses seemingly everything. He loses um, he loses his wealth, his livelihood, his house, he loses his children, he loses his health. And he has three friends who come to visit him, commiserate with him. And after they briefly commiserate, they uh, what ensues is a theological debate about the problem of evil, about divine providence and sin and suffering. Our first reading is right at the very beginning of that debate, one of Job's three friends, Eliaphaz, speaks first, and he argues that sin in this life is punished with suffering, and virtue, good deeds, righteousness is rewarded with material prosperity. And so what he's implying is that Job is suffering so much because he sinned so much, which we already know from the beginning of the book is not true. Now, Job, for his part, in this first reading, we just get part of his response. That's, that's all we get. But here's what he says. Is not man's life on earth a drudgery? Are not his days those of a hireling? He is a slave who longs for the shade, a hireling who waits for his wages. Here, Job is not speaking of his suffering in particular, but just mankind's lot in general, right? For in this life, both good and bad, suffer in the world. Job is saying that Eliaphaz is obviously wrong. He's saying, just open your eyes. Everyone in this life is subject to suffering to one degree or another, and it has nothing or little to do with whether or not that person is good or wicked or somewhere in between. Now, this is only the beginning of this debate. Other friends jump in, and Job replies, and this goes on. When we get to the end of the book of Job, Job vigorously asserts his innocence. He swears oaths to his innocence, and he demands, let the Almighty answer me. And that is precisely what happens. God answers Job. But what makes the book of Job so special is how God responds. He doesn't show up and fill in the blank and answer all the questions. No, he comes and throws the gauntlet down to Job and challenges him. 
He turns the tables on Job and begins to question him. He says to Job, Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And that he begins to question Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what words bases, on what words bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And the morning stars sang together, and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. And this rhetorical questioning continues for quite a while. The purpose of it is to induce humility in Job and to give him the correct perspective of God's power and wisdom. And so Job learns three very valuable lessons. First, God indeed orders all things in the universe according to a divine wisdom that surpasses our meager human understanding. God's providence covers all things. Nothing escapes his will. Anything that happens, either God has directly willed it or he's permitted it. Now, God is all good, and he doesn't will evil. He permits evil. And we'll see why in a minute. Number two, God is not accountable to us, nor is he required to give an answer to our every demand. And finally, wisdom consists not in solving the riddle of suffering, but in humbling oneself before the Lord. In short, the, the, the message of the book of Job is that God permits sufferings, he permits evil, but we are called to trust that he has a purpose for the trials that being placed upon us. It's a pretty good reply to the problem of evil. But it's not the last word on suffering in the Bible. Final word is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. In our gospel, the beginning of his ministry, he hears that Simon's mother-in-law has a fever. And he goes and grabs her hand and helps her up, and she is cured of a fever, which in the first century was more, much more serious than in our own. Well, word quickly spreads, and by the end of the day, everybody and their brother is outside the door. Everybody suffering from any kind of ailment, crying out for relief from suffering as Job cried out to God, but this time, Jesus, God in the flesh, doesn't just say, trust me, he heals them. Using his divine power, he alleviates human suffering. I could imagine a skeptic saying, great, Jesus healed the blind. There's still blindness in 2024. He restored hearing to the deaf. There's still deafness in 2024. He cured lepers. There's still leprosy even today. He raised a few from the dead. We still die. What gives? We need to understand something. Jesus' miracles are not ends in themselves. His miracles are signs pointing to a deeper reality. They are signs pointing to his identity, giving us a reason to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the incarnate Son of God and the Messiah. They're also signs of the, of the ultimate healing he came to give us. He came not just to alleviate physical suffering, but to heal us body and soul. In the end, on the last day, those who persevere in loving God will dwell with him in the new and eternal Jerusalem, where sin and suffering and death are no more, and every tear will be wiped away. But it would be a mistake to say the only response uh, that Jesus' only response to suffering was to heal a few people 
uh, as a sign of, of the healing to come. No, Jesus shows us God is not aloof to our suffering because God becomes one of us in Jesus and embraces every kind of human suffering on the cross. It's on the cross that Jesus definitively answers the problem of evil and shows us, at least in general, why God permits evil and suffering. For God alone has the power and wisdom to bring good out of evil, to bring life out of death. Think of Good Friday. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest uh, apostles, one of his apostles. He is falsely accused. He is wrongfully convicted in a kangaroo court. He is tortured and beaten. He is abandoned by friends. He is reviled by the crowd. And we can imagine as Jesus hung on the cross, disciples hanging on to hope that he would do something, that he would work some miracle, some sign that would show Caiaphas and Pilate and all those who opposed him that he is who he says he is. But that didn't happen. He died. And they put him in a tomb and they sealed the tomb shut. And we can imagine, can only imagine, what dark thoughts tormented followers of Jesus in the days that followed. But on Easter Sunday, they would have begun to see that the tremendous evil of, of Friday had been transformed into an even more tremendous good, this font of our salvation and our redemption. Now, of course, the apostles only had to wait three days to discover this. We will have to wait much longer to find out why God permits this or that suffering or evil in our life. Maybe we'll have to wait until heaven. But even this view is short-sighted because the fact that God's providence governs all things, that nothing escapes his will, means we do not need to be afraid. For God is good, God is our Father, and all things are within his wisdom and power. Nothing can happen that he does not will or allow, and in both cases, he will work all things for the good of those who love him. And if we are willing to trust him, to surrender to his providence, then we will find freedom from fear and the key to true peace. Surrendering to God means, yes, we take care of what's in our control. We take care of what is our responsibility. But when it comes to things out of our control, those things we didn't choose, can't change, don't like, we recognize them as the cross, a cross that God is permitting us to carry so we can share in the glory of his resurrection. And so we trust him. We have to think of the crosses we bear in life like medical, like a medical intervention. Think of a surgeon. When a surgeon, uh, a surgeon's knife wounds, it wounds us, but it's a wound designed to heal and strengthen us. Likewise, think of something like chemotherapy. It has all kinds of, of, of unpleasant and negative side effects. But again, the intention is the same, is that this chemotherapy will heal the patient despite the difficulty of the side effects. Well, if we trust fallible human doctors to heal us and our loved ones with a surgeon's knife or with chemotherapy, why do we not trust God whose wisdom, power, and goodness is infinite when he sends crosses our way? May we trust in God in good times and in bad. May we embrace our crosses so that he can make us into those saints he created us to be.